This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. And just to be clear, I'm not slurring my words. I'm not drunk, but I am. Uh, I have been dealing with insomnia these last few nights. So if you hear something weird in my voice, that's probably it. These next couple episodes are going to consist of a few interviews I've done about historical people around the JFK assassination. I don't know if I've discussed this before, but this podcast, this whole Fail State Update podcast is really just kind of like notes and research I think I'm doing for a book that I want to start working on next year. I don't know what it's going to be about. I'm just kind of like looking at various subjects that reflect each other and kind of comment on each other. I mean, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, how that emerged at a time when when the Central Intelligence Agency was really becoming a force, even though it was sub-Rosa. It was kind of underground and not really well-acknowledged among the the nation. Not in the way that it would kind of explode into consciousness in the late 70s with the church hearings. And, you know, now we live in a cryptocracy or surveillance state. You know, there's this, like, governance and surveillance structure that exists below the radar that really has a profound effect on on all of us Americans. And uh, to this day, one of the best, earliest looks at, at this uh, surveillance state is a book called Spooks by Jim Hogan. What year did that come out? I'm not sure what year that came out. Um... According to Wikipedia, Hogan was Washington editor of Harper's Magazine from 79 to 84. He then wrote Secret Agenda, which is like probably the first kind of alternative telling of Watergate. I asked the poor guy to explain his theory of Watergate, and it was so, there's so much to it, I immediately felt bad and uh, cut it out of the following interview. But yeah, his book Spooks. In, uh, I think, the mid-80s, kind of opened the lid on this this cryptocracy or the surveillance state, looking at private companies, private intelligence companies. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to him was his uh, 
friendship with Norman Mailer, the uh, the novelist and journalist, and uh, sometimes pugilist. Norman Mailer was a great influence on me when I got started. You know, he wasn't just a journalist and a novelist. His literary endeavors influenced his nonfiction work, and his nonfiction journalism influenced his literary work in a really interesting and profound way. And Mailer was every bit as fascinated and concerned with and by the JFK assassination as as I am. And uh, where Jim Hogan and Norman Mailer intersect is in a kind of salon or drinking club or dining club that a mailer named the Dynamite Club, which was really an opportunity for people who were familiar with the intelligence community and the American uh, cryptocracy, I guess I'll use that word again, to get together and swap stories and share ideas. You'll hear all about this group of which uh, Norman and uh, Jim were kind of the founding members. So I thought, what better time to talk to Jim about Norman Mailer and the Kennedy assassination than this month, the month of uh, November. So here we are. Let's uh, see what Jim has to say. got started and I, I can't put it there's no date on it but it was sometime in the late 1980s uh, I was living in Alexandria at the time I published uh, two books uh, one was called spooks the private use of secret agents by multinational corporations and the rich and the other was secret agenda which was a revisionist history of uh, the Watergate affair and um, I'd gotten a, uh, a phone call. <clears throat> I was at home at night, and uh, the phone rang. My wife answered it, and she says, it's for you, honey. I said, well, who is it? She said, it's Norman Mailer. I said, yeah, right. <laughs> As it happened, Norman Mailer was like one of my idols, you know, I mean, but a very distant figure. I'd never really been in touch with him at all whatsoever, so for him to call me out of, no- out of nowhere was... Uh, uh, was astounding. And I didn't believe it was him. Um, I thought it was a friend of mine, Michael Descend, who's a performance artist in San Francisco. And I thought he was riffing with me. And Mailer and I went back and forth about this for about a, you know, a minute, which was a long time. And finally, he said, listen, Jim, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Judith McNally, my secretary, call you and confirm that it's me. And at that point, I realized, my God, it's Norman Mailer. Because Judith McNally was an obscure figure. You know, many people wouldn't have known who she was. So Mailer said he wanted to come to Washington and, uh, and have dinner with me. 
and he could talk about what it was that he was interested in. And would I be available? I, <laughs> I checked my calendar, and incredibly, I was available for the next year whenever he wanted to do it. So, um, so yeah, we got together uh, about a week later. He came down to Washington from New York, and uh, we went to the Palm, which was a, uh, an impressive uh, noisy restaurant that rich people went to. It was not a place that he was particularly comfortable in, nor was I. But he, I think he wanted to impress me or something. I don't know. Um, so he said he was he was thinking of doing a book on the uh, about that was a novel about the CIA and its history, and he was wondering if I could help him with some of my research uh, because he said that he admired my books. And in fact, he did because he gave me quotes for the books out of, without my asking for blurbs or anything. And they were very favorable. So I was flattered. And of course, I was interested to do, you know, whatever he had in mind. What were you doing at the time? You know, I had been Washington editor of Harper's Magazine for uh, a long time. And uh, at this point, I was, let's see, I had started a, uh, a firm that did investigative research for law firms and labor unions. And um, I, I think at that time I had partnered with Sally Denton, who is also an investigative reporter and has written uh, a number of books with Roger Morris and also on her own, uh, wrote a book called Bluegrass Conspiracy. And she was well-connected with the uh, AFL-CIO and the Industrial Union Department. And uh, as a consequence, I was able to do work for the mine workers research, investigative research for the line, mine workers or uh, a host of other labor unions and uh, the like. So I was, I was engaged primarily in that and thinking about writing novels because, frankly, I was, uh, I was disenchanted with investigative reporting which is largely, you know, you expect the thanks of a grateful nation after you've worked three or four years on a book. And what happens is you get yelled at by, uh, by the mainstream media for correcting their errors or indifference to reality. And um, so I was kind of pissed off. <laughs> yeah. Did um, Secret Agenda come out before Spooks? No. Spooks came out in, uh, in 1978. And... Uh, Secret Agenda, uh, which is about Watergate, as I said, uh, came out in 1984. So this was like four or five years later that uh, Mailer came aboard, in a sense. I can see, a, you know, revisionist history of Watergate, especially happening, you know, coming out 10 years after Watergate or so, um, ruffling some feathers. Did you get a lot of heat for that book? There were feathers in the air. Yes, I did. Because, you know, the... The Watergate story, as uh, orthodoxly told by the Washington Post, um, is basically the foundation myth of, or, or the foundation story, the birth story of American journalism. It's, uh, you know, it's the bedrock. Uh, two cub reporters go out to investigate the evil president and bring him down, proving that democracy works. And I was saying something else was going on here, that this was, uh, it was a lot more complicated than the Washington Post told the story. And one way to illustrate that is that, as we all know, there were the Irvin Committee hearings into Watergate. And eventually they, you know, after a year and the purge of the uh, Nixon administration, they produced a report that ran 
I think it was 1,260 pages, something like that. And of those 1,200 pages, six were devoted to the Watergate break-in. That left, you know, like 1,194 pages about something else. And, this, and the Watergate break-in itself, because it seemed like such an open and shut case, five spooks caught inside the political headquarters of the opposition party, um, it, as an, it, it didn't seem to need any investigation. And um, the fact that I got into that, got interested in the Watergate break-in itself, was just uh, a chance. I was actually working on something else and, and had to do a certain amount of research in order to stand that up. So I got into Watergate. And yeah, I mean, it was Watergate, uh, the Watergate story that um, made me somewhat disenchanted with investigative reporting. Now, the book was successful. It got some good reviews, and it effectively launched a whole collateral industry in that for the next 30 years to this date, books continue to uh, appear. Uh, many of them based on the Watergate story as told by Jim Hogan. And in fact, the, uh, uh, the federal court in Baltimore actually upheld uh, uh, Secret Agenda as, a, as the most likely uh, truth about Watergate. And that was in a defamation suit that, that was filed against Gordon Liddy. Um, the court ruled in Liddy's favor and Liddy's, Liddy's analysis of Watergate, Liddy's account of what Watergate was all about, uh, was essentially derived from Secret Agenda, as Liddy himself subsequently uh, said. The Dynamite Club then, so how did it go from a phone call between you and Norman Mailer to this kind of group? Mailer was in touch with me because um, I think Spooks was the first book of its kind that really named a lot of names. And these were names of often obscure people, or not often, but were almost always obscure people who were in the CIA or the FBI or the NSA and who had left those agencies to go into private practice. And I was writing about the phenomenon of the intelligence community as a new enterprise in the American system. Since, post -war, since World War II, and that these people were going into this kind of uh, uh, de facto civil service and doing what they did. And then they would retire at the age of 50, 55, and they were setting up their own companies all over Washington and elsewhere in the world to provide security services, countermeasures services, electronic eavesdropping, etc. So Mailer knew this, and he wanted to talk to those people or some of those people, and he felt that I, he thought that I might be able to introduce him to a couple, and that would help him uh, in his research for a book that ultimately became Har Harlot's Ghost, uh, which is, I think, the longest novel that uh, Mailer had ever written. So after we had dinner at the Palm, he began to come down to Washington on a regular basis, uh, let's say, you know, for a year or two, it was like uh, at least once a month, but more often every two weeks. And I would take him to uh, this very interesting bookstore, for, for example, uh, that he came to love. And that was the intelligence uh, 
uh, at the intelligence center bookstore. It was a, uh, in a high rise building on, uh, I believe it was on Pennsylvania Avenue, or maybe it was K Street uh, in Washington. But it was, you know, in this anonymous office building around the corner from uh, a, a CIA building. Uh, again, about two blocks from the White House. And um, <clears throat> to get there, it looked like you were going to an architect's office or something. You'd go up to whatever the floor was, like the, the fifth floor or so, by elevator. You'd get out, and there would be a doorway, and there would be a security camera, and you would have to get buzzed into this place, which had no sign on it otherwise. It was just a number. and. Um, I'd been told about it by some spook I knew who knew I, you know, bought books and said, you got to go to this place. And um, so I had gone there a few times previously. And what got me in, because the woman who ran the store and whose store it was, Elizabeth Bancroft, uh, who's now the uh, director emeritus of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, uh, you'd be screened by her on the security camera and she'd say, you know, may I help you? And I said, well, you know, this is Jim Hogan. And she immediately said, Oh, are you the one who wrote spooks and secret agenda? Yeah. Oh, come on in. So you'd go in and there was this bookstore that had nothing but everything having to do with intelligence matters, really esoteric stuff. Some of it was collector, collectible, I suppose, from a bibliophile's standpoint. But um, anyway, it was that. And um, when, I was, when I showed up with Norman Mailer, who's your guest? She said, oh, it's Mr. Hogan. I said, yes. Who's your guest? So that's Norman Mailer. Bzz, immediately the door flew open. You know, we go in. Because she, among many other things, Elizabeth Bancroft was, and probably still is, a true bibliophile, you know, she liked writers. And, uh, but her relationship to the intelligence community was, how to put this, it was uh, very, very close. And um, I think the, uh, her bookstore was an extension of the, uh, of the CIA, frankly. Uh, I don't think she'd dispute that even. So, you know, we went there and, um, you know, Mailer wanted to, you know, I, I, I told him I would introduce him to some people. And uh, one of the people I introduced him to uh, was Lou Conine, uh, who in Spooks is, to my embarrassment now, <laughs> is known as uh, three-fingered black Luigi. Lou Conine was, was a legendary. I mean, you can't, you, you mentioned Lou Conine in the context of intelligence and somebody uses the word legendary immediately. Uh, so Conine was, um, he lived a life that was right out of, uh, you know, the Three Musketeers or something, you know, it, and you couldn't tell how much of it was BS and how much of it was real, though I think conservative estimates are that at least 90% of what the stories about Lou Conine are true. Um, he, was, he joined uh, the French army in 1939, I believe it was. And then when the French fell apart, came back to the United States and joined the American army. Uh, because he spoke French fluently, he was um, uh, detailed to officer candidate training school. 
and became a lieutenant, was then seconded to the uh, OSS and dropped behind enemy lines as part of Jedburgh teams. Had a heroic war. After the war, was in the special services unit and uh, uh, a couple of other units that were like predecessors to the CIA and led directly into it, <clears throat> where he had, among other tasks, the very strange and mysterious assignment of, quote, resettling uh, defectors. <clears throat> there are several, several ways to resettle defectors. Defectors you're happy with, you set up in a kind of witness protection program. Defectors that uh, can't be settled in that kind of program, but who at, in 1947-48 uh, could be resettled in Brazil and Argentina. And then there were defectors who could only be resettled in a grave. Anyway, Luconin was responsible for all that. And um, subsequently, he uh, wound up in uh, Vietnam. By subsequently, I mean in like 1951. He'd been a part, joined the CIA, had been inducted into it or whatever. Sent to Vietnam. Lived in Hanoi, knew Ho Chi Minh, General Jap. Uh, was on good terms with them, but was loyal to uh, the French perspective on Vietnam as a colony. So that wasn't making Ho or Jap happy. And then subsequently, you know, had a heroic war with the, uh, 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 as, as chief of station, I think, in, um, in uh, Saigon for a while. Uh, and on and on. I mean, you know, and at this time when Mailer and I met with him and had dinner at, we had dinner together at, uh, we had drinks at O'Toole's Bar in, in McLean and at the L'Auberge Chez Francois in McLean, also next to, uh, right next to the CIA's headquarters pretty much. Um, at that time, Conine had left the agency I think he retired in something like 69, 1969 or so. And he was working for the uh, BNDD uh, that subsequently became the D DEA uh, in charge of combating, having a special unit that was responsible for combating um, drug trafficking in Latin America and South America, and particularly targeting cartel leaders. And I use the word targeting literally. Um, there was uh, an assassination program that Conine was supposed to be heading at the DEA, which the DEA, I think, I don't know if they've acknowledged this as, as something that actually happened or whether it was only proposed to uh, be implemented. In any case, Conine was at the DEA for like eight or 10 years thereafter. And I consider putting Conine together with Mailer in a French restaurant, the high point of my parapolitical uh, career. <laughs> you know, it was amazing having those guys together. But after meeting with Conine, uh, Mailer was very happy because he was the kind, exactly the kind of character that, that he was looking for in his book. And Conine was very helpful in terms of tradecraft issues and things like that. They got along famously. Uh, and with great mutual respect between them. Um, and Mailer said, you know, we should do this more often, and we should 
get together uh, with some other writers and people who are knowledgeable about some of the things that Mailer and I were talking about, such as the, uh, well, such as in particular the Kennedy assassination, by which I mean the JFK assassination. And uh, so he said that he would get Judith McNally on the phone and get her to make some invitations to people. And, um, and I should use my sources and call some of them and see if they wanted to get together also. And I said, well, what do you have in mind? I mean, you know, and, and he said, well, we'll get together and we'll have dinner and we'll just talk and there won't be an agenda. There'll just be, you know, us talking, getting to know each other and, and sorting out some of these many issues having to do with, um, you know, Ollie North and other stuff. Um, and I said, fine. And then he said, but we really need, we really need some sort of hook that'll get that everybody there. So he said, let's let me think about it. And he called me back uh, a day later and he says, I got the hook. He says, we're going to call it, let's call this the Dynamite Club. And I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, the Dynamite Club. I mean, it sounded so corny, you know, and, um, and so overreaching. But that was Mailer. Mailer, you know, made these great leaps uh, that would be, that a lesser person <laughs> would not dare to do. And, but, you know, some of the people that I was talking to saying, you know, we're going to get together with Mailer. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we're forming something called the Dynamite Club. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, so it happened. You know, we did get together. And it was, um, it was not so much a club as a movable salon. You know, I mean, it was a place where we had dinner together at uh, Ed Epstein's apartment in Manhattan or at Bud Fensterwald's house in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and, you know, it just went on from there. The one biography I, I read of one Mailer biography I looked at said 1989. So Mailer had, you know, had a long standing interest in these issues for at least a decade before that, you know, with, uh, the fifth estate and, you know, backing, you know, counter spy magazine and stuff. Um, what do you think was the, uh, initial impetus for him to get involved in this world? Well, I think, you know, Mailer was brilliant guy and, uh, very politically. He was brought up politically in his family and stuff. And, um, uh, it, it was a natural, natural thing with him. He was a progressive. And um, I think the, uh, the Kennedy assassination, maybe I don't, the war in Vietnam coupled with the Kennedy assassination, those events in tandem, especially as well with the uh, civil rights movement coming on as it did in the 1960s, everybody's hair was on fire. And that Mailer you know, Miller was heroic in this. I mean, he was at demonstrations, uh, some of the demonstrations that I was involved in as well, though I didn't know him at the time. I know that he was dragged off and thrown in a paddy wagon, put into a, a cell with like 30 other guys. And um, he first, the first thing he did was start writing checks for their bail until he ran out of checks. Um, that was amazing to me. You know, and um, so that was another reason to, as far as I was concerned, to really admire him 
but yeah, I mean, I think this was a very natural uh, course for any intellectual in those days, in the 1960s, to be interested in these matters. And it was also a very new thing because, well, there's always been a critical left. Um, it never had the energy or traction that it did in the 1960s. Suddenly everything was rolling and, and moving forward in, in ways that the more hopeful among us thought would be revolutionary. Maybe the more naive among us thought would be revolutionary. Um, so, you know, I know that I could go back to the, the, the Kennedy assassination changed so much in America. And one of the things that it changed, uh, this we're talking here, 1963, November of 1963. Prior to that time, it was, it was straight Cold War. And it was unpatriotic to be critical of the president, to question his authority or his motives. The White House was given what amounted to a hall pass on everything politically. And um, the war in Vietnam uh, highlighted that. And the Kennedy assassination, followed by the very unsatisfactory Warren Commission report, of which, which nobody I knew believed, and I think probably the polls would show 80% of the American public disbelieved, um, changed that view of the press and also uh, of, the, uh, of the administration of American government. Suddenly questions were, it was legitimate. It was patriotic to ask questions. What was the CIA? Most people in America basically have no contact with the federal government that they know of. Uh, except on April 15th when they do their taxes and when the mail is delivered. Um, they don't know any actual CIA people uh, or NSA people, but if you live in suburban Virginia or you live in suburban Maryland, the people you're, you go to the, the swimming pool for your development and, you know, half the people there will be working for some part of the intelligence community, and it's very normal. It's your soccer coach. Um, so I've, I've gone off on, on a, a tangent, which I tend to do. Given that the intelligence community is such an important part of the government and how things operate, how do we even hope to know, you know, the size and scope of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are organizations that, that hope to do that and uh, make efforts to do that, but it's a black box. The, 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 the budget is, uh, is, a, is a state secret. Um, the numbers of people working for the different agencies and the like uh, are also secret. The agencies themselves, in some cases, are completely secret uh, in the sense that we don't even know what their names are. And the relationship between the federal intelligence community and the commercial empire that feeds that community and services that community is obscure. And um, so I don't know how, you, at, at this point, I don't know how you actually find that out. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the organizations that uh, National Security uh, Center goes into that. 
but I don't know how successful anyone really is at it uh, or how accurate, you know, it's, it's almost like COVID-19, you know, there's not, there's not enough testing being done. His latest novel, Harlot's Ghost, spins the tale of a CIA agent at the height of the Cold War. He's run for mayor of New York, directed his own film, and was recently named the official author of New York State. Great pleasure to welcome Norman Mailer with us. What are you saying? This is about the CIA and specifically yes. focuses, um, you use it as the backdrop, and you specifically focus on the period between 55 and, and 64. Mm-hmm. What are you saying about the CIA and its role in America? in this country? Oh, I don't know that I have anything to say about the CIA that's brand new. Uh, you know, many people would see the CIA as vastly more sinister than I see it in this. Uh, I think the CIA was the, um, the vanguard, the intellectual elite of, of the WASP establishment in America. Yeah. And I think a great many people on the left, and I consider myself a man on the left, have always seen it as a sort of absolutely sinister, closed organization without inner variations. One of the uh, Mailer biographers says that um, by the time Mailer got to Harlot's Ghost, and certainly by the time he finished it, he had grown to stop seeing the CIA as a threat to democracy and was kind of won over by them. Do you think that's accurate? No. I think that um, what is, but, you know, in that I don't think he was won over to the CIA's view of the world or its politics. What he was, was uh, he realized that by meeting some of the people who actually worked for the agency and had a career lifelong commitment to that, he, it was a humanizing thing. When you get to know people, you understand that their motives in many cases are good. You know, these people were patriotic in a way that was not corny or self-indulgent, but they were genuine patriots to working for the CIA. They were genuine heroes in the CIA and in the military. But that doesn't excuse things like MKUltra. It doesn't excuse things like it's at least theoretical involvement. Or, well, no, it's direct involvement in assassinations around the world. Um, I think that Mailer simply became a far more sophisticated uh, student of uh, world affairs. And um, as he got to know the, the agency and went drinking with some of the people involved in, in that, in the agency and other government enterprises, um, he gave, he, at least as a writer, could see their point of view, their way of looking at the world. I don't think he adopted it. I think that, um, I think that his book, Oswald's Tale, uh, changed a lot, certainly changed, made my relationship to him much more complicated in a way. It's, it's clear, to, I don't think it's even worth discussing whether there was a conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination. It's, it's self-evident. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, something happened in that period that led him to write that book, which I, rather than a different book, he was going to write another book that was going to be a sequel to Harlot's Ghost that was going to deal with the Kennedy assassination in fictional terms. And um, uh, that book never appeared. What appeared instead was, uh, uh, was Oswald's Tale. And I, I attribute that without any, well, I don't know without what. I, just, I think this has to do with his relationship 
with a Hollywood producer uh, who he knew for many years and was a collaborator with on several books and documentaries and, and other work. Uh, that was Larry Schiller, uh, who's a very successful director and producer in Hollywood, a successful author, um, and who has a very um, straight view of, uh, or orthodox view of these affairs. Um, and I think uh, it, was, it was Larry Schiller who uh, arranged for Mailer to go to uh, uh, Moscow, where he met with some of the KGB people, I guess, and was shown documents and, you know, ultimately produced this book with Schiller's help that, um, you know, basically embraced somewhat diffidently, I would say, the uh, lone nut theory of the, water, or of the JFK assassination. But I don't think Mailer was really convinced by his own book, to be honest with you. I've always, I regarded Schiller as Mailer's Svengali. And um, I, I suspect, always suspected, that um, Mailer's relationship to Schiller was, that Schiller was so well-connected in Hollywood and through Hollywood with New York and publishing that um, it would it was very luc it was it was lucrative for Mailer to be in that relationship with him. I mean, Mailer had a number of wives at different times, and um, he had a lot of uh, expenses um, for child support and everything else. So uh, I think Larry Schiller was helpful to him in that way, and um, I think that unfortunately, uh, impacted his work uh, uh, on several levels, uh, especially with respect to the uh, Kennedy assassination. I think it was very unfortunate. Yeah. And, you know, they had this relationship where, you know, Larry would get a deal for a Norman Mailer book about Marilyn Monroe, say, and then compile like a dossier, give a big folder to Mailer, and all he had to do was write it. And then he'd get paid. You know, it's kind of like, it's a great deal for a writer, you know, who's trying to make money, who's, you know, has half a dozen alimony payments and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, I think we have the same take on, on that. Um, uh, it, it's unfortunate. As I say, he was going to write a sequel to um, Harlot's Ghost that was going to be called Harlot's Grave. And Harlot's Ghost, the last words in the book are to be continued. And um, I think he was intending to write a book that would basically have been about the Kennedy, a novel that would have been about the Kennedy assassination, written from a conspiratorial point of view, uh, with his protagonist, you know, basically recalling his involvement while, while basically at this point the protagonist is living in Moscow, I think. And he's going back over his own history and, and the like and remembering. And I think that was the book that Mailer was, was setting out to write was this, this other novel. And instead was uh, induced or somehow persuaded by Schiller to uh, write a nonfiction book uh, about the JFK affair that turned out to be um, Oswald's tale. 
Yeah. And you know, there's something to be said for the the idea that you know Mailer's book promotes, and you know, pretty pretty common establishment view that it's like all things being equal. You know, if you believe that Oswald was capable of doing it, you know, you know, Occam's razor, you know, that's the simplest explanation. Well, I knew he was very open to the conspiracy, to a conspiratorial uh, or conspiracist uh, interpretation. I I was always of the view that he was uh, his view of the, the affair and my own were very similar. Uh, I mean, there were aspects of the thing, you know, you could say things to Norman and he would get it. Like you'd say, well, okay, so this guy Oswald plans this assassination, uh, albeit at the kind of at the last minute, because uh, he doesn't know there's going to be a motorcade going underneath his window. But he plans this assassination and that includes his escape. And he would be the only assassin in world history to plan to escape by municipal bus. That's just not working. Also, you know, it, the whole issue of motive is at the center of it. And I would discuss this with, with Mailer about, you know, why it was important to understand what, you know, in connection with Watergate, why it was important to understand what they were actually after. What was the motive behind the break-in? Well, what was the motive behind Oswald's alleged murder of JFK? And the Warren Commission could not find a motive. Uh, there's just speculation that Oswald wanted to be famous by killing for killing this probably the most admired man in the world. Even though he himself, Oswald, had always spoken relatively favorably about Kennedy. But we know that's not that wasn't the case. It's a non-starter because Oswald tells us as much. He says, I was a patsy. You can't, on the one hand, want to be famous for doing something and then deny that you did it. It simply does not make sense. And Norman was very open to those kinds of arguments rather than going into the, we never went into the ballistics issues, the medical issues and stuff like that. Just on a common sense level, the Warren Commission's report made no sense. Where were you the day he was shot? You know, I've been asked that, it's funny, that's the one question I've been asked three or four times on this tour, and I guess it's natural, it's an um, organic question, but it's an embarrassing question for me, because it's one of my, my least, um, what can I say, my least commendatory moments. Uh, I was in a restaurant with Norm Pedaritz, who used to be a great friend in the old days, uh, on the lower, on the Middle East side, uh, East 50s in Manhattan, and with someone else there, I forget who, and uh, Jack Thompson was his name, that's who, and uh, there was... Uh, the news came in, and I was very cynical. I was bitter at Kennedy at that point for whatever reason. And I said, uh, oh, you know, that, that shot just singed his scalp. He's not really hurt. Uh, he's just letting us all wait for an hour or two so we realize we love him and need him. But in fact, there's nothing going on. And, uh, of course, an hour later he was dead, and uh, I realized that I had a great deal to learn about a great many things. You know, you learn that over and over and over again, but that day I learned it dramatically. Do you have any memory at all why you were mad at him at that time? Well, I'd have to, again, I'd have to reconstruct it. Uh, who knows, it was some little thing probably, because after all, the Bay of Pigs was two years before that. It, it, it could have been for a variety of reasons, including petty reasons. Maybe it was because he'd never invited me to the White House. Uh, I don't pretend to be any better than the next fellow. 
This book, Norman Mailer's Oswald's Tale, an American Mystery, if somebody buys this, what do they get in here? Well, uh, you know, I like to give a lot of value for the dollar, so <laughs> they're going to get a good bit. But uh, if you ask me to sell my own book, all right, I'll try to do that. Uh, they're going to get a, first of all, they're going to get a, an informal biography of Lee Harvey Oswald, which starts in the middle. The first half is about him at the age of 19 going into Russia and leaving Russia at the age of 22. That's the first half of the book. And it's got a lot of new material about Oswald in Russia, living in Minsk, getting married, having children there, uh, uh, trying to get along in the Soviet system, becoming disillusioned, and a lot of detail on how he got out because he used his wits. He was very uh, resourceful in getting out of the Soviet Union. Uh, he had to fight the Russian bureaucracy and the American State Department bureaucracy. And he finally ended up making it so uncomfortable and so unpleasant for each bureaucracy that each one said, let's get rid of this problem. I mean, finally, the only way to solve certain impasses with a bureaucracy is that you become so intolerable that the people in the bureaucracy say, isn't there some way we can pass this indigestible morsel through our system? And he succeeded in doing that in both places. People always thought it was very mysterious that he got out and came back, but in fact it wasn't. He just wore out two bureaucracies. So that was my conversation with the legendary Jim Hogan. Towards the end there, we, we started talking about a character named Lawrence Schiller. He's a controversial figure, for sure. Definitely in the conspiracy theory community. I have a few magazines here, like from the 80s or whenever, where the conspiracy theorists really feel like Mailer met Schiller and they got to him somehow. And he started promoting this lone nut theory, which the facts viewed through one lens, that's what it looks like. Or, you know, Mailer felt that he had got to a truth. Sometimes people look at the evidence and decide maybe there wasn't a conspiracy, even though their gut may have told them otherwise. And it's hard to know what to make of Schiller's involvement in particularly the Jim Garrison investigations into the Kennedy assassination. Among Lawrence Schiller's more famous or infamous scoops, he managed to sneak a tape recorder into Jack Ruby's hospital room and get like his deathbed interview. And then uh, when Susan Atkins was arrested for her role in the Tate LaBianca murders, Schiller scored a long interview with her. The deal was he, he provided $80,000 in a trust for her kid. Schiller's name also comes up in the Jim Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination, which is odd. I didn't even ask him about that. I'm not entirely sure how that all adds up. You know, for some people, all this points to Schiller as being an agent of the government, pushing these investigations the way they want them to be pushed. I'm not saying all that. But I'm saying, you know, he's an interesting man, and, I, uh, and I'm glad to have scored this interview with him. Your name keeps coming up not only, like, when I read Mailer biographies and do background research, but even, like, you know, some recent books about 
Jim Garrison or the Mansons or something. You know, you seem to be like Zelig, you know, you're just all over the place. Some people say Zelig was partially based on me, but I don't know if that's true or not. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really interesting to see, you know, your name coming up so often. Is there going to be a, uh, is there a book about you? Is there a Larry Schiller biography in the works? Or? I have an interesting title. Oh, yeah? A, a working title. Mm-hmm. The Lies I Told to Get the Truth. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's something that comes up a lot, like when you talk to journalists about their craft or i just had an interesting discussion about um with a fellow named ken silverstein who used to be an editor at harper's and yeah he's he's the gentleman who he basically started a fake lobbying firm and um went to like in order to have talk to lobbyists in washington dc and see how like the really bad operators in that field you know conduct business you know, it was a big controversy at the time because, you know, he misrepresented himself to, to get access to these people, you know, and the kind of discussions that, that were going around it was like, of course, journalists can't always be upfront with their sources. They kind of got to, you know, play to them a little bit. I think people didn't like to see how the hot dogs were made in that case. I think that anytime you have to convince somebody to provide you with either access information, exclusivity, and the truth, you fall into a trap of being a a slight manipulator. And manipulation is a form of lying. You say you're not a writer. Um, I know you got your start as a photojournalist. How did your career go from taking photographs to, you know, arranging stories and doing research and the production end? Number one, you have to understand that I, I grew up very, very insecure. I did not know until I was in my 50s that I was dyslexic, highly dyslexic. Could not spell. It could not read very well. To this day, I've only read four books in my life, or maybe five. So I discovered very early on that I couldn't write, and I wasn't very well educated coming out of high school. So what happened was in the late 50s, I started to hang out with people I would photograph and ingratiate myself. And I learned how to ingratiate myself into people's lives so that I could be educated about the subject or the subject's background that I was photographing. When I went to photograph Konrad Adenauer, the chancellor of Germany at that time, I hung around close to six or seven hours talking to him after that and his aides. Well, I learned a lot about Germany. I learned a lot about a lot of things, but that was my form of education. And then I started in the very late 50s, 59, 60, 
using a tape recorder to preserve my conversations with people as a form of education, even though I very rarely listen to the tapes. But I was very, very insecure. So photography, those that have studied dyslexia, know that people with dyslexia move on to the arts as a form of expression. Well, obviously that's what I had done, not knowing I was dyslexic. But but come in the mid-60s, I was doing very well as a photographer. I was 23, I was already driving a $20,000 Mercedes. So you can imagine I was making very good money. And I had to have stories written with my photo essays that would be syndicated or presented for sale to publications all around the world. So I would hire writers to write the text or captions to go with my pictures extensively. So by 1966, I start to have good relationships with some of the Life magazine top writers like Barry Farrell, who would write for me. I would pay him or give him a percentage of what I would earn. And like in 68, when I covered a very important black film being made in Cleveland called Uptight that Jules Dessan was directing, I hired a Black Panther to write the text to go with my pictures. You see? So, and then when I published a big essay on LSD, Capitol Records hired me to do interviews and to make documentary records so they could present themselves on FM radio stations as a more hip record company. They were no longer going to be the record company of Sinatra and Judy Garland, but they were going to be the record company of the Beatles. So what did I do? I did interviews and documentary voice documentaries for FM radio stations. Why did Lenny Bruce die? Homosexuality in the American male. The controversy, who killed JFK? Well, this all came from my photojournalism. And that's when I discovered that I had a way of interviewing people, preserving history, and I started to put a phrase together, which I used on everybody. You owe it to history. You know, don't give me any shit. You owe this to history. So let's sit down, you see? And uh, so I started hiring writers to write books based on my interviews. The first writer I hired was, uh, actually was the second writer, Albert Goldman, to write a book called Ladies and Gentlemen, Lenny Bruce, which became a, a number one bestseller. And Albert was somebody I had interviewed about Lenny Bruce and I did the record for Capitol Record and uh, 
and and then sometimes I didn't even even think about who I was going to hire. Like on the tenth anniversary of the death of Marilyn Monroe, I decided to do a book with twenty-four of the world's foremost photographers who had photographed Marilyn. So I was negotiating with the publisher, and I knew I needed text, an introduction, and I knew I needed controversy because otherwise I wouldn't get the cover of Life or Time or The Atlantic or book. So the publisher said, well, who do you want? Who do you want? And I never even had thought about really who I wanted. So I said, oh, get me Gloria Steinem. No, get me Norman Mailer. <laughs> I'd never read Norman Mailer in my life because I don't read. Gloria Steinem I had photographed with Bella Abzub and T. Grace Atkinson. Ten minutes later, he comes back and he says, Mr. Schiller, you have Norman Mailer. Well, Norman didn't even know his, his agent had committed him for six months because Norman owed the agent so much money that the agent made the deal for $50,000 and a third of the royalty so he could get money that Norman owed him. And Norman and I wound up doing five books you know, over 35 years. But that's a, credit to, that's a credit to Norman, not to me, because a man with an ego as big as his was able to submerge his ego when he saw material that he himself could and allow him to write in a new and different way. And that's how The Faith of Graffiti came about, and eventually the Executioner's Song, Oswald's Tale, and, you know, books that he and I did together. Oswald's Tale is interesting. I spoke to um, Jim Hogan. He said that um, Mailer was, you know, of the impression that there was, like, a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, and obviously Oswald's Tale is not about that. Let me give you the history, okay? Number one... I was there in Dallas when Kennedy was killed. And I developed, again, a very interesting relationship with Marina Oswald. And also with Earl Ruby and Eva Grant, Jack Ruby's sister and brother, the Rubenstein family. So I knew Marina very, very well. She used to bring the kids to California And her kids would vacation with my kids. And my wife and her would hang out together. I have personal letters from Marina, which are quite revealing. And I was very much involved with Earl Roop. So I had had done the JFK record in 68. And I had... I'd been involved with The Realist and some publications. So what happened was, after we did Executioner's Song, you know, which won the Pulitzer, I wanted to finish my relationship with Marina and document it in some way. So I asked Mailer whether he would do a book which was 
Oswald's years in the Soviet Union. We went to Minsk for months. We interviewed people. We hired a, a Mossad agent to track all the people that had immigrated out of Minsk to certain countries. We hired ex-KGB agents to work for us who are now retired to track other people. As an example, the couple that lived above Marina and Lee in the uh, apartment had immigrated to Chicago. The people that lived next door to Marina and Lee had immigrated to South America. Interview the KGB agents that worked Oswald. The uh, KGB guy, I can't remember his name, starts with a T, who was giving Oswald Russian lessons but he was really a KGB guy to determine whether Oswald really knew a lot of Russian, but was faking it that he didn't know Russian. Do you understand? So, you know, we interviewed, we stayed almost a year, and I'm going to give you a little war story just to give you an idea. One day, we're sitting with Shukowski, who's the head of the KGB in Minsk, in a sauna side room, and we're having lunch. And opposite me is Strakowski, is Norman. And down the table to the left is Strakowski's personal bodyguard, and to the right is Lyudmila Peresvetova, translator. And I said to Strakowski, look, you give the KGB files on Lee Harvey Oswald to a Russian writer and he will publish it and nobody will believe it. But if you give it to a writer such as Mr. Mailer, who takes five years or four years to write a book, whose books are in the libraries of every major library in the world and even in your own KGB libraries, you have a chance believed. And he looked at me and said, yep, yep, yep. But then in English he said, but if you rent an office on the third floor of my KGB building with hard currency, which I need, do I ask Tchaikovsky a question? We will bring you that part of the KGB files that answers your question. And if you stay long enough and are smart enough, you might see most of the files or all of the files. Well, Norman and I stayed nine months. We we're ready to leave. And I said to Norman, 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 you know, we can't publish all of this. We got to have backup. People aren't going to believe it. I need to get a copy of the files. And, and we got to take it out of the country with us. 
said, well, they're going to set us up. How much money do you think it's going to cost? And I said, no, I don't know. I'll offer them $25,000. Well, you can only bring into the country $10,000 at a time. So we had to make three trips in and out of the country just to bring in the, the cash. How did you build a relationship so you could interview Jack Ruby for that record? Well, number one, how you ingratiate yourself with people. Everybody, it's different. It's moment by moment. It's, let me give you a story without answering your question directly, but indirectly. Do you know who Robert Hansen was? Uh, this, the spy or the FBI agent? That's correct. Yeah, the FBI agent that was a spy. So when that story broke, I decided I wanted to do it because I had very good connections already with the KGB. I'd made three films in the Soviet Union. I knew the bureaucracy. I knew people very high up in the government. And I decided I wanted to do that story. All right. So my connections in the Soviet Union would be good from the Soviet point of view. So how do you get in now with the Hansen family? Well, the next day I read in the newspaper that one of the first things that the FBI did, they took Bonnie, they took the car away from Bonnie Hansen and the kids because he had a government car and she had no way of going to get food. It was in a little article in the newspaper. So what did I do? I went out and bought her a car. Gave her a car. Sometimes that's what you do to ingratiate yourself. Now, is that buying a story? Is that journalism? Is that mean you're going to get less of the truth or more fabrication? No. In my opinion... You ingratiate yourself for two reasons. Exclusivity, number one. And not only the exclusivity, but being able to spend lots and lots and lots of time with people. Not just an interview where a five o'clock deadline for the newspaper or television or this or that. But if you do projects like I do, I don't work for media. I can spend days, months, or years if I want. So when we went to do the book, Oswald's Tale, I don't know, we'll, maybe we'll spend four months, six months, nine months, whatever. We do a budget. How are we going to finance it? This, that, and everything else, you see? So that's you. sometimes you take extreme measures to ingratiate yourself whether it's Gary Gilmore or whether it's O.J. Simpson. I mean, how did I ingratiate myself into the Simpson defense team? Well, I did know Robert Kardashian, but they were short of money, Robert told me. O.J. owned property, had a pension, but he had no money in the bank, no cash. And Shapiro needed a million and a half dollars. So I dreamed up a way of getting a million and a half dollars for them the next day. And that was that OJ would do a book published before the trial would begin in which he would answer the thousands of letters that were coming to him in jail. Mm 
book would be, I want to tell you, it wouldn't address issues of innocence or guilt, but everything else. Well, that book, the advance was a million and a half dollars. That's how I ingratiated myself. And therefore, I was able to write my own book with Jim Woolworth of Time Magazine called American Tragedy, which wound up being, by everybody's account, the number one, the best book, bestseller of the Simpson case. But it's the ingratiating yourself at the beginning. And when I went to interview all the lawyers after the trial, which I knew, I paid them all their three, $400 an hour. Because they're giving me their time. I'm not interested in, I want their devoted attention. So I wasn't ashamed to say, I'll reimburse you for your time. Does that mean I'm not getting good journalism? No, that depends upon how good an interviewer I am. How do, how do you feel that Mailer's um, opinion of Oswald changed through his writing? You know, he went from believing there was a conspiracy to believing there was not. It's very simple, very simple. Mailer's point of view changed because of the facts. Because when he wound up interviewing everybody and you saw the pathology of Oswald and his life and his family, and you understood Marina, you know, really who she was, where she came from in Leningrad, you know, why she was in internal exile, being punished. And then you saw the people that Oswald mixed with and this and that and everything else. And then you came back and you and really interviewed people like Ruth Payne and other people. It's the facts that changed Mailer's point of view. I didn't even have a discussion with him. We did all the interviews. We transcribed them. And I actually got mad at him. I had a big fight with him. I said, what are you writing the book about Oswald coming back to the United States? This is supposed to be Oswald's years in the Soviet Union. He says, no, no, I got to write that. So, you know, I think it hurt the book. But the fact is, the facts are what changed Mailer's point of view. I think the way he presented Oswald definitely is unique in all the the depictions of Oswald. Um, There's no question that a bullet left the Manuel Carcana gun and hit Kennedy. The neutron activation test from the chamber of the gun to the pieces of the bullet that were found in the car. Not even the whole bullet on the stretcher, the pieces of the other bullet came from that gun. So you know that Oswald, who was seen with the gun, handled the gun, et cetera, et cetera, fired at least one of the shots. So the only thing left open is whether Oswald was part of a bigger conspiracy or whether he was motivated and was an unwitting dupe of a conspiracy. Now, what everybody forgets is a very important factor that Oswald was motivated to take a shot at General Walker weeks and weeks before he attempted and succeeded in killing Kennedy. If he had succeeded in killing Walker or even injuring Walker, he would have been captured. There would be no assassination of JFK. He missed Walker by three inches. 
One of these books, your name came up in A Farewell to Justice by Joan Mellon. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Nope. Talks about possible motives for Oswald in the gay underground, homosexual underground in New Orleans. That's because Ferry and, uh, and uh, you know, and Garrison's thing and all of that, you know. It has a couple footnotes of, like, communications you've had with the FBI. How did that come about? How did you end up communicating with the FBI? I don't remember, but I know a lot of people in the Bureau. I've worked with the Bureau on many, many events. Uh, I know that, uh, number one, I photographed Garrison and his lover in uh, Las Vegas when his hotel bills were being paid for by uh, certain corporations when he was a public servant, and that was all published in Life magazine. And then when he accused uh, Clay, uh, what's his name, uh, Clay Shaw, the life asked me because of my relationships to find out where Shaw was on the day of the assassination. And I was the one that found out that he was on a cruise ship outside of San Francisco, four miles in the ocean. So, you know, Shaw was not even in the proximity of where Garrison was saying he was. But I'm not here passing judgment whether Clay Shaw or this or that. All I'm saying is that you have to be driven by the facts if you can obtain all the facts. And that's, and you know, and that's why the Kennedy stuff has persisted for so long. It's, you know, and all conspiracy theory is driven, you know, by an absence of facts. Look, I, you know, I know Marina. Uh, I'm not saying intimately, but I know her. I spent time with her. Uh, she didn't like the chapter about her in the book. Because when, I don't know if you know, is that I, I interviewed her with Norman for five days in an Embassy Suites hotel in Dallas for the book. Three, two, three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, and two hours at night. And she wasn't allowed to leave the hotel for five days. She could have people come visit her. And she screamed at me at one point in the interviews and said, you know, how did you find out? What did this, this, this? And the FBI had never even treated me like this. Or, or she, I think she actually said the Secret Service never treated me the way you're treating me. And I said, well, when the Secret Service interviewed you, they hadn't been to Russia and spent a year researching the subject. Uh, so when we, in this, in, when we were in Russia and we would go to find somebody and knock on their door and they weren't home, we'd put a little thing on the door that would say, you know, the American writer, Norman Mailer, who's considered the Tolstoy of America, visited you and could you please call us at our hotel? He would like to come and talk to you or something like that. So when she didn't like the chapter about her in the book, she wrote a note to Norman and I and said, Norman is no Tolstoy. (laughs) (laughs) I dreamed I was the president. Of these United States 
And there you have it, a couple interviews with remarkable men, to uh, borrow a phrase. Thank you for listening to Failed State Update. Uh, make sure you follow me on Twitter at Lenny Flatley. Subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcatcher, podcast app. And if you uh, want to check out some of my books or read some of my articles, uh, check me out on the web, LennyFlatley.net. I dreamed I forgot the day John Kennedy died.